On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we visit the New York State Association of ASC's 2022 Spring Conference, held May 10th and 11th, 2022 in Saratoga Springs, New York, and interview various speakers and the leadership of the association. Welcome to the AC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 160 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for June 5th, 2022, recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York, and from the New York State Association of ASC's 2022 Spring Conference in Saratoga Springs, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic, and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So, Sue, this was a conference that you were able to get out to, finally. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, you had been to the uh, the fall conference last year, but mm -hmm. unfortunately, you haven't been able to get uh, with me to a couple of the conferences that have been going on. Mm -hmm. So we had a, a lot of fun. Actually, most of our employees, mm -hmm. uh, certainly those that are based in New York, uh, were able to yep. attend the conference. And Saratoga Springs is a beautiful location. The hotel was wonderful, and uh, we really uh, had quite a bit of fun. And Amateur Healthcare Strategies held a special event prior to the conference for mm -hmm. all of our clients, and we also did an infection control mm -hmm. session before the event started. So. Yeah. It was a jam-packed conference. I mm -hmm. want to thank my uh, colleague and our director of operations, Alex Borneman, who uh, helped a lot with putting together he the schedule. He does help a lot. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, of course, the whole uh, education committee for the New York mm -hmm. State Association, who met on a weekly basis for almost six months uh, getting prepared for it. Yeah, and much of your staff, you know, checking people in and just yep. making sure things were running smoothly. So it's definitely um, uh, all hands on deck. Thing, but it, I think it turned out really nicely, and like, like you said, it's a beautiful area. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other nice thing about New York State Association meetings is that we always have that wonderful dinner mm -hmm. uh, in between the first night to the second yep. night. And uh, it's always been a great social occasion as well as a great opportunity to network with other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that is somewhat unique to the state of New York. Really, the other states don't tend yeah. to have something that's a thing. And I remember we've been doing that for over a decade now. It's just one of those things we had started when we were a much smaller organization. And we used to go around the room and everybody would introduce themselves and where mm -hmm. they're from. But when now you have 150 people yeah. in the room, you just can't do that anymore. <laughs> So what we did is we had an opportunity to interview a number of people, and uh, we're going to introduce each of them in the next segment. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have each of the interviews. 
Our listener patron program, also known as ASC Central, has really taken off over the past 12 months, and we are so grateful to all of our over 100 members. Our patron members help support our efforts here on the podcast and get a number of great benefits also. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is the longest-running podcast dedicated exclusively to the ASC industry. ASC Central provides members with a wealth of management tools and resources, including regular members-only Zoom sessions with John and other members to discuss relevant topics, quarterly Zoom meetings where we update patron members with important issues in the ASC industry, periodic study sessions for leaders that are planning on taking the CASC or CAPE exam, and access to a large database that includes federal regulations, interpretive guidelines, and the state regulations, checklists for administrators and nurse managers, example meeting minute templates, example policies and procedures, budgeting and financial projection tools, risk assessments, and example forms, and much, much more. Members also get discounts on books written by John Gailey, ranging from $10 to $80 per book, and can even schedule a personalized mock survey with John and save over $1,000. For more information and to access this additional content, please visit ASCPodcast.com or ASC-Central.com. So our first interview was with uh, Scott Becker, who is a lawyer and a CPA uh, and a partner with McGuire Woods, and he's also the publisher and founder of Becker's Healthcare. Sue, I had a lot of fun uh, because, of course, he has his own podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which is generally in healthcare. It's not specifically focused on uh, ASC. So uh, yeah. we had a little bit of fun, and, and, of course, Scott and I go back 30 years. Uh, he was one of the first people I met when I got into the industry, which kind of dates him. Uh, but he was looking really good. <laughs> but we not had, you, of course. No, nah, that's right. Uh, that was... Uh, we, we had a lot of fun with the interview, and he was the keynote speaker, and his mm-hmm. topic was on ASC's healthcare key trends and issues. So we talked a little bit about that and, and really what's going on in the ASC industry. So let's listen to the interview. So this is John Gailey here at the New York State Association meeting in Saratoga Springs, and I'm here with my dear friend from way back, though we haven't seen each other in a number of years, Scott Becker, who uh, uh, has that wonderful uh, Becker's uh, podcast, which is Really kind of exciting to have one podcaster on another podcaster's uh, you know, website here, and I really appreciate your time. And, of course, you know, all the great stuff on a- Becker's ASC. Uh, John, what a pleasure to be here. Such a pleasure to be on, on so many levels, to see old friends, to be out yeah. traveling, to see Saratoga Springs, New York. I mean, what a magnificent pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and so thrilled to get a chance to visit with you and, and to speak today. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And you and I go way back. 32 years I've been going to ASCA conferences, and I remember you're one of the first people I met. I was a lot more naive in those days than I am today, and uh, you've been a, a, a major force in this industry, and I really appreciate everything you've done over the years. And to have you, you're keynoting here at the association meeting in approximately 10 minutes, so I guess we're going to have to keep this a, a relatively short uh, thing. So uh, what's going on in the ASC world, and what are you going to be talking about today? So this is, a, this is a great question. So what's going on in the surgery center world? The surgery center world is somewhat a microcosm of what's going on in the hospital health system world, but somewhat different. So the, the big trends that are going on are, you know, reimbursement getting challenging again, payers and surgery centers, payers and hospitals fighting again a little bit more. You've got the end of sort of stimulus funding from the government, which is mm-hmm. a big deal for hospitals, health systems and surgery centers. You've got incredible 
staffing and labor issues. Yeah. You have a decline in the number of independent physicians, which has always been the, in the long run, the lifeblood of independent or freestanding surgery centers. And then on the flip side, you've got one positive tailwind, which is the overall movement of lots of cases just moving towards outpatient right. in a variety of disciplines. So you've got a lot of headwinds, a couple of tailwinds, and, and, and a long-term fascinating situation. Right. It's a, it's a fascinating industry. I think mean, the, um, the pandemic has given us an opportunity to be able to finally move those cases from the hospitals. People are recognizing the importance of hospitals to be there for those very difficult situations, but not necessarily for surgery that, you know, perhaps surgery, surgery can start moving away from the hospitals into more appropriate uh, areas where and leaving the hospitals to be able to take care of those things that they need to be able to be available for. Well, and that that is so true. I mean, what you've had is sort of a Big movement. There was there was always a big movement towards outpatient, but you've had a big movement towards people wanting to have their cases done outside of hospitals. You've had a big movement towards hospitals needed to keep their operating rooms for those things they absolutely have to do in hospitals. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's an economically challenging situation for hospitals and health systems, but it is something when you've got more and more physicians and, just as importantly, more and more nurses, more and more staff of every mm-hmm. level that prefer to be in a setting, some kind of outpatient setting with with a different level of flexibility uh, and a different level of just a different situation. So you've had a lot of, like the pandemic has been a huge push towards outpatient. Mm-hmm. It's been sort of almost the, the kick or the jolt towards it that the surgery center industry has been waiting for for some time. I mean, there's been different jolts over time. Right. This was a big one where people really prefer not to have their cure in the hospital with thousands of dollars of people if they have yeah. their choice. I mean, it's just a right. fascinating dynamic. I, I think, uh, so we're, we're at one of the state conferences here. Uh, this would be a lot bigger if people were able to sneak away from their surgery centers. ASCA was smaller this year than it had been in the past. Part of it is just getting people back in the practice of coming back. Uh, we've been talking on the podcast a lot about staffing. It seems like virtually every every podcast we're talking about staffing issues and leadership issues. You know, what's your take on where we're heading right now and what, you know, uh, just some advice for our our younger people coming up. I, you know, yes. people like myself, 32 years ago, I got into the industry. You know, luckily I, I was never shy, as you well know. The staffing issues are going to be endemic, it seems like, for some time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've got, we've got an education system that turns out doctors and nurses in a less efficient way than they can. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's broken because we turn out great nurses, great doctors. It just could be done, it seems like, a lot quicker and a lot easier. Mm-hmm. You've got this evolution where you've got more and more nurses. You had a record number of resignations last year. Yeah. And, and you particularly have that in acute situation where nurses don't want to be at, quote, unquote, the bedside. And there's still a ton that do, of course. But nurses, like everybody else, have choices. It's just not nurses, it's tax, it's staff, it's everybody. And so you've got this evolving situation. Surgery centers are much better positioned than a lot of other sort of facilities to to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Just because there's not, if you're a health system, you often have thousands and thousands of employees. And trying to keep employees in today's world where they have to be in-person versus remote and so forth is a much more challenging world. Mm-hmm. Some people just don't want to do that. They don't want a career where they have to be in person all the time. Right. And so you've got staff that's changed their views. I mean, if you're a surgery center, Typically, a surgery center is 25 to 100 employees and just still very difficult, but much easier than in a hospital and health system. Mm-hmm. And, and in the long term, in hospitals and health systems, it's going to be nursing triage. It's going to be nursing leadership, nurses managing other staff to watch patients. The right. hands-on care, the hands-on touching of the patient being done less and less by nurses, but more and more by people Lower that nurses are person. supervising yeah. and that's okay that that will be okay it's just it's going to take a while what you've got yeah. is what you hear health system say is 
look, we've had to go through nursing leadership changes so quickly. Mm-hmm. Where it used to be someone who was here 20, 30 years and did a lot of the institutional training. Now you've got very bright, very young people sort mm-hmm. of training themselves in a hurry on what it looks like. And, and you're going right. to have this, it's going to take a while to, to work through the system. And it, and it, like many things in life, unfortunately, you're going to end up with the half systems, the half centers, fearing through this better than the have-nots, yeah, just because yeah. it's easier. You've already got a healthy center to attract more staff. It just is, and in, 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 you know, in, in you, you need to have enough staff that you have capacity. You talk about people having the chance to have days off. You can't fix burnout. You can't fix mm-hmm. any of these things without people having days off. Right. You can do all the like little things you want to do, meditation on the floor, a sauna, a spa, but none of it really works unless you can get people days off. Mm-hmm. You can't get people days off without capacity. Right, and, and to be able to live their lives out and, and yes. still have a life in it. And I think leadership is uh, one of our biggest challenges right now. As you know, we've been doing these boot camps, which have been incredibly popular um, recently, uh, recognizing that so many people are coming into the industry with absolutely no experience, or we're taking nurses off the floor you know, with very little experience and turning them into nurse managers in, in a very rapid time frame. And there's just, that's just the evolution in a hurry. Right. And you see it in every business. It's not unique to healthcare. We see it acutely in healthcare mm-hmm. and we worry about it differently in healthcare because we need caregivers for all of us. And you have to right. remember, we also have 330 million people and an aging population. So you've got this incredible growth of need mm-hmm. at a time when the workforce is not growing anywhere nearly as quickly. Right, right. Uh, so unfortunately, you're a lawyer, um, and I, I, yes. I spend most of my life, uh, you know, picking on lawyers. Um, so, tell me, what are some of the legal challenges that you're dealing with today? What are the big legal issues? Sure, I mean, the legal challenges are sort of not too different than the typical ones. You still have situations in in surgery centers. It's it's you know just the day to day more employer-related issues mm-hmm. than anything else. I mean, people trying to figure out how to stay staffed, how to work through staffing and stuff like that. You still have, it, depending on the chain, on the situation, the center, you've got government investigation still. Right. You still have tension amongst surgeons as to ownership and profits and mm-hmm. those kinds of things. You know, we don't have as much of that in as crazed away as we've had the last, as we had five, 10 years ago. Right. But you still have a lot of that. You've got, in New York, you've got... National change, trying to do business in New yeah. York against the backdrop of the Article 28 rules and those kinds of things. You know, a, a lot of um, similar things. You know, it, it's not as much of the non-compete stuff as we saw a few years ago, but that right. still is active. You know, you've got really the biggest challenge is just the limited pool of growing independent surgeons that people have to choose from. Right. You right. know, and trying to make sure people aren't doing improper things to get those surgeons. So one of the concerns that I've had coming out of the pandemic is is what's ahead of us right now with our wonderful trial lawyers out there? You know, are we going to see uh, lawsuits? And what types of lawsuits do you think we're going to have to defend ourselves against? If you can make that prediction. Yeah, I think it's a very hard thing to predict. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because lawyers are always looking for different ways to make money, different ways to mm-hmm. look for more money. Uh, you had a period of time was this growth of false claims cases. Right. And, and that's not growing as fast as it was, although the Department of Justice is still quite active. Medical malpractice is always there in some way or another. Mm-hmm. You've got this growing thing that's going on, and you see it in the national news, between Starbucks, Amazon, today USC, last week Stanford, is the increased efforts at unionization. Yeah. And, and whether or not at surgery centers, you'll see more and more of that. And that's a natural sort of, you know, unions run the decline for years, as employers will have their choice of workers, 
now that there's not enough workers and staff, you've got unions on the rise again. Mm-hmm. And those are fascinating issues. I mean, it, and, and lawyers, of course, are involved in, you know, there's no joke that one lawyer in a town goes broke, you put toyers in the town and they both get rich. Because right. now they've got something to fight over, something right. to deal with. Each but other. You've got, you have all these issues. So I, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the, the you, and you also have lawyers like every profession fit into the haves and have nots. And both the haves going after bigger targets to sue, which typically aren't surgery centers, but it could be surgery center chains and the private mm-hmm. equity chains. And then you've got the people that are not making a living looking to sue anybody because right. they, they need to make a living. So they look to sue. It's like they're sue happy. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it just is, it's almost like you give a, you know, a, a carpenter a hammer, he, he hammers something, a lawyer sues somebody. They don't know yeah. what else to do with themselves. Do you got a conference coming up? Yes. Your June conference, tell us a little bit about it. What do you think is going to be a highlight? Obviously, your speaking is going to be the highlight. Yeah, but. no, my speaking is the low light, but the rest of it should be fine. No, I think we, we've got, a, we had, we just had our hospital conference, our annual meeting, and we had magnificent turnout, lots of great keynotes. We were surprised at how, I would just say surprised, but we were thrilled at how vibrant it was, how many people came out, what we saw. People are anxious to see people in person again. Mm-hmm. We're always worried about new waves of COVID sort of yeah. cutting and shutting and closing and stuff like that. But no, June, we get back to orthopedic spine, ASCs, pain management. And in June, there's just so much interest in those areas still. Yeah. I mean, those are the last bastions of independent surgeons that are highly entrepreneurial. Right, And absolutely. so you still see like this very interesting thing. And you made a very interesting point. It's we're always wondering whether, you know, doctors can go because they choose their schedule. Really, they do mm-hmm. their surgeries the days they want to do them. They and we've always done it Thursday to Saturday to give physicians more flexibility. Mm-hmm. The, the nurse audience has been very busy at our conferences the last several years. And so many centers are so busy mm-hmm. that harder. Well, we'll see if, if what uh, attendance looks like. Right. You know, right. We, 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 it's, it's gone. Um, we're very excited about it. We're, we're, we've got, um, you know. I know that we've got great turnout coming. We've got great interest, and it's a uh, you know the spine pain AS area. They're facing entrepreneurial areas. Well, and and in our experience with our clients over at Amateur Healthcare Strategies, they are the ones that really came yes. out of the uh, the pandemic with, with a bang. I mean, especially those places doing those total joints, for example. I mean, the total joints, just general orthopedics. You've got mm-hmm. an aging population. You don't have enough, you know, even though there's 27 orthopedic surgeons in the country, just like that, mm-hmm. there's not enough for the amount of aging population. Right, so right. they're all busy. I mean, right. all surgeons and are And more busy. active people yes. yeah, at this age, And too. people are more active. We're trying yeah. to be more active, and we're all trying to stay away from you know, at my age, which is old, you're trying to stay away from the hip and knee replacements as long as you can. That's you know, right. You're trying to moderate your exercise to watch it, but stay very active when it's a constant challenge. And, and one last item, uh, cardiac, cardiology. Yes. What do you yes. think is, is the future? That's been well, a little bit it, of a it, slow Yeah. Uh, yes, slow what happens movement. is every time that cardiac starts to really move to surgery centers, uh, CMS changes around the reimbursement yeah. rules on it, so it's unclear as to how much we go. It's not. It's never going to be like it's going to be a lot of you know smaller implant type things and smaller vascular access surgery. Next up, we'll stay in surgery centers, but it's very hard because reimbursements all over the board on it. You know, right. there's been different chains built around it based on the promise that it's really going to grow. Right. And there's a lot of interest in it, but until CMS really clarifies what they're going to do on it, it's hard. And know that it's going to be solid there and yeah. moving into the future. As always, Scott, it's great to see you again. You look great, by the way. Both of us I, lost a lot of weight over the. How do we do that during a pandemic? I don't oh, know. It's a constant. It's a constant, as you know. As yes. you know, at our age, it's a constant effort towards maintaining physical and mental health. It's a full-time job in and of itself. It's just, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. It's a challenge. And it's like, oh, it stays off one day, stays on another day. It is what it is. And thank with the you, pandemic, John. it wasn't fun. No. But, but thank you so much for joining us here. And uh, i got to get you to uh, the, the main stage right now. What a great pleasure. Thank, <laughs> thank you so you. much for having me, John. Sure thing.
And our next interview was with another friend of mine, Scott Hayworth, MD. Uh, he is the CEO and market leader with Optum Tri-State, and he's also the CEO with Caremount Health Solutions. And he had a, another uh, keynote on why ASC should align with freestanding medical clinics. So let's listen to that interview. So this is John Gailey. I'm here at the New York State Association Conference in uh, Saratoga Springs, and I'm here with uh, Scott Hayworth. Scott and you and I have known each other about five years now. We've been uh, working with one of your uh, with your center in Westchester County, and uh, now you've uh, you've really been moving, haven't you? Tell tell, us, tell our listening audience uh, where you are right now. What your position is? So right now I'm CEO and market leader for Optum Tri-State. It's one of the five Optum Care regions in the country. Mm -hmm. So we have roughly 2,250 providers in Optum Tri-State, and we take care of roughly 2.5 million patients. Mm -hmm. and, and I think uh, you're going to be talking especially about how ambulatory surgery centers fit into the healthcare system and how large groups can uh, be looking for an opportunity to be able to find a place that is uh, efficient to operate in uh, and obviously provides high-quality care. So why don't you... Uh, talk a little bit about your thoughts on that. Sure, John. Well, I'm, first of all, a firm believer in ambulatory surgery centers mm -hmm. in in providing care in the least expensive venue. I'm an OBGYN by training, a minimally invasive surgeon. And what we've done over the years at Caremount, where I was CEO, uh, Caremount became part of Optum, and then three months later they asked me to take over the tri-state. So as I look at what we've done, we've actually moved care from surgery centers to the office, mm -hmm. and we have full anesthesia in the offices. And our office-based suites, you wouldn't know you weren't in ASC, yeah. but they're not Article 28 or New York State regulated. And where we've done hospitals where we've taken care out of the hospitals. We then try to fill the hospitals with really care that needs to be mm -hmm. there, the more tertiary stuff, the more advanced stuff. Because the answer is we have to cut the cost curve. Mm -hmm. And the only way we're going to do that is by doing it and performing procedures in the least expensive venue. And then our relationships with ASCs run the gamut. So in Long Island and New Jersey, I actually have ownership in some of the ASCs. Where in um, the Caremount ASCs, we've let the doctors really own it. Mm -hmm. In some cases, some management companies own a piece as well. So we both manage, and in some areas we do own as well, as well as working with outside organizations like John's to help us manage. I mean, one of the fascinating things during the pandemic uh, has been uh, how things have, how ambulatory surgery centers have had to ramp up. I mean, I think one thing we recognize, and you're, you're a New Yorker like I am, uh, we recognize what a, a bad move it was for New York State to shut down so many hospitals over the years and, and be running even pre, you know, even during, before the flu season at 100% occupancy, which left us no room for margin, uh, which is really what we've had to shift away from here. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on, you know, how, how ASCs fit into that and how we've been able to help out? Well, first of all, very early in COVID, I spoke very strongly about the fact that GI and other office-based procedures that could be done in the office or the ASC should be done there. Mm -hmm. To take for the government to not allow us to work, right. but to take it into the COVID-filled hospitals made no sense at all. Mm -hmm. I also spoke as a physician about 
missing cancers. Mm-hmm. We still don't know how many cancers and how many people are going to be hurt by not being diagnosed early with a colon polyp or a breast malignancy and, and, and obviously other cancers as well. So I, I've, we really did a disservice to the public. And we tried to explain it, but unfortunately it fell on deaf ears. And now we've obviously recovered, but there's still a backlog. I, mm-hmm. I think, and we all know as providers, what happens is that if a patient forgets about getting that colonoscopy or forgets about getting that mammogram, it's not like, oh, things are open now, I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And or people weren't working and now they're working and now they don't have the time to take off from work. So we really missed an opportunity. We really didn't serve people well. Well, and it's been interesting to see this procedures that are coming back. Like orthopedics came back very quickly and largely because people discovered, hey, I don't have to have that surgery in the hospital. Let's go to the surgery center. But we're still seeing challenges with uh, uh, eye surgery, for example, you know, people delaying their cataract surgery because they're still a little leery about going to the hospital. And as you mentioned, GI, that's an that's a area where it's coming back, but still it's a little bit slow compared to what we had hoped would happen. Sure. I always told my patients, I don't practice anymore, but I told them for years, getting a colonoscopy is so key, a screen colonoscopy. Because unlike a mammography, remember I'm an OBGYN, so I took care of women, um, a mammography will catch a cancer early mm-hmm. and will treat them and be very, very successful at doing that. But in, with a screen colonoscopy, not only do we diagnose it, but we treat it many times by removing the polyps. Mm-hmm. So that's a real sin for someone to suffer with colon cancer when all could have been prevented. So we are in a new world right now with regard to uh, value-based care. And I know uh, you have been very much involved in that and a lot of the discussions that we're going to be having during this conference here in New York is going to be around how we can structure our surgery centers and how we can be prepared for that future. Talk a little bit about where you feel the industry is going and what they can do to prepare for that. So CareMount, which is part of the tri-state, the tri-state's made up of three large groups, ProHealth on Long Island, Riverside, New Jersey, and CareMount. At, at CareMount, we had a very successful next-gen ACO. We were, in some studies, either the first or second most successful in the country for traditional Medicare. And now that we um, are part of Optum, we also are moving to the REACH program next year. And we're a DCE, direct contracting entity. I know I'm throwing a lot of acronyms yeah. around this year. But we've also moved into Medicare or Advantage Risk. Mm-hmm. The other areas we're looking at is we're looking at dual eligibles, and which is both Medicare and Medicaid risk. The answer is risk. And mm-hmm. I think even for ASCs, they have to think about how they can either do bundles or they can, uh, they can move into the area of risk because they are less expensive. So every insurance company and every physician group like ours that's taking risk there's every incentive to send your patient to an ASC rather than having them Mm -hmm. care performed at a hospital. Also, as many people know, when the hospital owns the ASC and they bill out the hospital rates, it's still very, very expensive. So Mm -hmm. you really want independent ASCs, sort of the ASCs that you've been consulting with. Right, right. Because that's where your cost of care is going to be the lowest. But on the other side, they're the ones that have the least sophistication. You know, they have to learn and they have to start adapting to this new system here and be prepared for that. Without a doubt. And that's why you need people like John who know what they're doing. Uh, you know, 
I always say part of being a successful CEO is knowing who to hire or who to, who, who to um, contract with, pick the best people and let them do what they need to do. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, we, I have roughly 10,000 employees that work for me now in the tri-state and it's growing. And we have a number of people who are involved in the risk area. Mm-hmm. So to think if you're a small ASC or a small practice and you're going to be able to do everything on your own, you just can't. You really need professional help. People get up in the morning and think about nothing else but the mm-hmm. risk business. Because if you don't do the risk business well, you can be very hurt by it. Right. And lastly, what's the future for ASCs? What do you feel? Uh, I mean, I, you know, how optimistic are you about for the future? And uh, and uh, how quickly can you, do you think we can pivot as a as an industry? I'm very bullish on ASCs. I, I think they don't have the bricks and mortar of a hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you will lose some cases to the office to um, office based surgery suites, but you should be able to backfill with more and more from the hospitals. I, I think you're in the right position for the future. You're really in the right place as we trying to cut the cost curve because we as a country can't afford to keep spending so much on care. So places that we can cut the cost and provide outstanding care, it's important. The other piece I'll leave you with, which I think is an important one, when we first opened our first ASC roughly 15 years ago, I remember as a gynecologist, there are procedures, elective procedures that patients passed on because they didn't want to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. When they heard that they didn't have to go to the hospital to do something, all of a sudden it was less scary. Mm-hmm. They felt more comfortable to having it done in an ASC. And they were less likely to, to, to withhold that care or to hold it off. Correct. And, and so I think that's something to always yeah. keep in mind. It's been a pleasure having you on here. Let's not make this the last time you're on the podcast. So thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, John. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, you too. And the next interview was with Stacy Fultz from National Medical Billing, and she spoke about outsourcing your billing services. Let's listen to that. This is John Gailey. I'm at the uh, New York State Association of Amateur Surgery Center's Spring Conference up here in Saratoga Springs, and I'm here with Stacy Fultz with National Medical Billing. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to meet you, John. So we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit of today about outsourcing uh, billing services because uh, a lot of lots happened. I'm, we've kind of had a pandemic in the last couple of years, as we know. So, you know, the pandemic has caused a lot of staffing issues. And uh, many centers, you know, the, the billing people either, you know, went remotely for a while and then didn't come back or didn't even come back at all. Um, so I think we're, it's fair to say that uh, staffing has become one of the major challenges surgery centers have. And of course, the vaccine mandate has removed from the picture sometimes, you know, a number of individuals that would perhaps be working in a surgery center that can't work there anymore. So, um, yeah, I think there's a bit of a push to find alternative ways to be able to staff the administrative functions, be able to do billing and things like that. That's correct. So tell me a little bit about the experience that you've seen recently with uh, the centers and the push for this. Has there been an increase in the demand for those types of services? There has been. Just like you said, we've seen a lot of surgery centers that don't have the staff to do all areas of the revenue cycle. Um, And so we actually have that staff and have the ability to not only just do the billing and coding and payment posting, but we also have a contract department that does contracts. We have credentialing services, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, front end services. So any of your pre-auths or your Mm -hmm. 
demographics, things like that. So that really helps the surgery centers because they don't have staff to perform their surgeries and then also do those functions as well. And I, I think that there's there's two potential needs for services like yours. You know, there could be that short-term need because there's been a turnover recently and Correct. you realize that, you know, at least for six months or a year you know, or even just a couple months for that matter, you know, they're going to need some help in order to get things back up and running. And there's a long-term um, situation where you just decide it's not cost effective. Right. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, we, you know, there are some parts of the country where you just can't find good coders or Correct. coders Correct. Uh, or, you know, experienced billing people or the price is so high that there might even be more cost effective to do it through outsource. Let's talk about the, uh, like the short term types, types of solution. Can you describe some of the, some of recent experiences that you might have, you know, where uh, people have had a uh, literally try to engage you very quickly to be able to solve a problem? Right. So one of the big things during the pandemic, especially, um, was the hospitals without walls program, yeah. uh, cause that came into effect. Nobody really knew much about it. Uh, we had a team of compliance people that researched, um, and we were able to get people up and running on that program quickly, mm-hmm. get their software system set up and it increased their revenue and helped with their collections, um, during that pandemic where they weren't seeing the same volume of cases that they were previously right. and also helped the hospitals out. And it was a relatively small number. I think less than 30 centers actually converted. I yeah. know right now they're having some pro- challenges trying to convert back mm-hmm. as they try to figure out the timing and all of that. Right. When it's going to end. Yeah. Uh, but have you seen an increase in the demand for, uh, you know, say a coder leaves, you know, what, you know, what do you feel is, uh, that decision matrix that they have to make as to whether, you know, you just wait long enough to be able to find a good coder or should we just step in right away and 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 yeah, do I think that's the most important thing: making <clears throat> sure that you have a qualified, certified coder, mm-hmm. uh, because you don't want to run into any compliance issues, and you want to make sure. And we have seen people come to us where they've had coders mm-hmm. leave, and they need our help immediately. Um, and it might just be for coding mm-hmm. at that point, but yeah. From from the long term standpoint, from organizations that might decide, what how do you? What do you think is the ideal situation for somebody who decides that they're just never going to do their own coding and billing? Well, I think the best um, is to have us or a company like us go in and analyze their services now, what they're, mm-hmm. how they're performing, are they meeting all KPIs, um, and then really decide if if that's a service that they want. Because, you know, staffing is getting expensive too, not only with keeping people, but also benefits mm-hmm. um, and other things that go along with that. So if they decide that they do want to outsource their billing, um, looking at all of our services and making sure that, you know, we work as a team with them to get their revenue up, that's mm-hmm. the best thing. Well, I think a key driver is also to the, the, the consistency. And it's one of the arguments for our company, for example, you know, you might, you might be able to uh, find people that can do all your compliance, but when they leave, right. suddenly and you need help. Then there's help. a hole. Yeah. Uh, and then so if, you, or if you outsource, and that's really what this is coming down to, is that right. as we look at the industry, you know, there's a lot of functions that can be outsourced, that those things you don't have to worry about anymore. And the turnover could be one of those major issues Correct. right there to Correct. avoid that situation. Or, you know, if there's a turnover in, you know, yours or my company, for example, the client rarely finds that out. Right. You know, there might be a little bit of a glitch there, but for the most part, there's somebody that steps in right away. You don't have to wait for somebody to be hired. Exactly. To do that. Exactly. Yeah. We can step in right away. Right. When it comes to outsourcing, there's also the issue you don't have to do the whole thing. 
Correct. You know, um, and so I think that's another thing just to talk about is that how you split these things up. Maybe you just lost your code or maybe you just lost your bill or maybe you just can't do follow up on claims. You know, the organization you represent one national medical billing, but there are other other organizations out there in general. You know, is that a service that they all offer? They can split those services up. Um, some don't, but some do also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, we definitely do, um, and we can split up services when needed. Uh, but you know, some do, some don't. It just depends on the company itself. Some mm-hmm. offer software programs with their uh, revenue cycle management. Um, so there's also that software product part of it as well, uh, solution. Um, so to make sure that the company you're you hire is software agnostic, that they have experts in every area of the revenue cycle, and that they have history in this business mm-hmm. to know all the laws, rules, regulations, mm-hmm. um, and make sure that you're functioning to the best that you can. Checking references, always yeah, a good one. Always, you know, and, and independently. I mean, yeah, the, the company's always going to give you their best customers, but uh, right. attend conferences like we're at right now and ask, you know, who, who uses this company and get some real-life examples because that's really critical to make that sure. Is that is critical, you know, right. Yeah. That's right. So you almost hit on one of the topics that's a pet peeve of mine, and that is, and this happens to me, I, I mean, every day on LinkedIn or any other platform, people are constantly coming to me and saying, are you looking for a revenue cycle management? And, uh, you, you know, they are rarely firms I have ever heard of before. Yeah. Right? I, I right. Mean, so we know they're not in the ASC space or they're not exclusive in the space. Talk about how important it is to get somebody that knows ASCs. And if you can also, because this is... I. I you know, of course, we're talking to ASC experts here mm-hmm. in our audience, but doctors don't always understand that there's a difference between coding for the office and coding for That's the surgery center. So please talk That's about correct. how important it is to uh, It to is get so somebody. important. There's so many different nuances with ASC coding and billing, not only just with aspects of a claim form, mm-hmm. um, how insurance companies pay, how your contracts are, what revenue codes you're using on on your codes that you're billing out and just the actual coding of it itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to make sure that it's coded correctly for the best reimbursement yeah. um, and make sure that, you know, every code is captured when you're doing surgeries at a surgery center. Right. So Stacy, you know, I'm a doctor here. I'm smarter than all of your coding people. So I know the code. So I'm just going to give the surgery center my code and they can build that. Right. Do you see anything wrong with that? Yeah, we do, we do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, right. Doctors go to med- medical school and they perform surgeries and they know what they're, they're doing. They're brilliant people. There's brilliant no doubt about people, it. Yeah. But there are certain CPT codes and not just if you know them, you might know them, but there might be extra ones that we can mm-hmm. add on to increase your revenue. That, and that's a very good point is that we're not doing it just because we're, you know, I, I think the doctors think, well, I can just hire somebody, you know, that you know, doesn't even have a certification and right. I can do this and right. I'll give them the codes and they'll, they'll just put it in the system. And we can sequence our, you know, coders sequence codes so that right. the higher reimbursed code is the first one. And sometimes you'll see where they don't do that and they're losing mm-hmm. money just based on the sequencing of CPT codes. Right. That, and that's exver- one of the main reasons you have to do it. Also talk a little bit about the importance of certification. Oh, it's certification. important. Yeah. Definitely important. Um, it, specifically in ASC coding. Too. Right. Because uh, there's lots of compliance issues and you want to make sure that mm-hmm. your coders know exactly what's being performed and that the CPT codes match exactly what's in that operative note. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I do quite a number of presentations on revenue cycle management uh, oversight. And one of the uh, arguments that I'm always making is that when you're doing oversight, when you're an administrator or a business office manager doing oversight of revenue cycle, it doesn't matter whether it's in-house or outsourced. You need to do the same type of analyzing of the reports. Correct. Check and balances. Uh, yeah. Yes. So talk about the types of reports that you would generally provide to a client and what they should be doing with them. Okay. So we, or any surgery center should uh, be checking their days to bill, make sure that their claims are going out quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, any missing information or missing op notes that haven't been billed because cases can't be mm-hmm. billed because the doctors haven't finished dictating yet. Um, our report or any reporting that gets sent to a surgery center administrator should include all your key KPIs. And you also want to make sure you're monitoring things like uh, charges billed monthly, payments mm-hmm. received monthly, uh, adjustments. Adjustments is huge. If you see a fluctuation in adjustments, that could be mean somebody's writing something off that right. shouldn't be writing anything off. Your days in ARs, very important to look at. Yeah. Um, Agings. Uh, Make sure not only are you looking at that, but you're also looking at your revenue per provider, revenue per case, to see what cases are actually making money and which cases are not. Yeah, I actually was looking at an age uh, receivable report that they ran at this particular organization ran for an organization that outsources their billing. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the amount of over 190 days was 75%. Mm-hmm. So clearly the billing company, who was not really an ASC specialist, was not keeping track of it. And, and I think that's one thing that I find is that often when you find physician billing companies that try to get into the ASC space, physician billing companies just do not do the follow-up. I'm sorry, I don't know why necessarily, because I want to trace down every last dollar, as do you. Mm -hmm. Um, But for some some reason, often those organizations that bill physicians, maybe it's because they make so much money, I don't know. (laughs) But um, they they just don't follow every last penny. I want to collect every $20 copay that I can. we got to get those last dollars. Uh, And of course, you have to get as quickly as possible, because the older it is. I was just going to say that. it's That's where it comes down to having a good front-end process. Uh, so that those claims don't age. Now, in the, in the ASC space, you're going to see that happen because we have higher dollar claims and uh, a little bit more complex, so there might need additional follow-up on those. But it's also important to understand that if you do see stuff aging, mm-hmm. um, it could be because of processes on the front end. Right. No authorizations, um, bad demographics, COB information not correct. So it it all works together. So, yeah, yeah that's why you have to be looking at everything and making sure that it's a flowing uh, well. And and just because you've outsourced it doesn't mean you outsource the responsibility for following up. Right. On those that's things. correct. That's correct. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Stacey. Tell us a little bit about your position over National Medical Billing. So I'm the Senior Vice President of Client Development at National Medical. I've been with the company for 15 years, um, mm-hmm. have done almost every area of the revenue cycle, other than coding. I'm not a certified coder. Yeah. Uh, and so I just make sure that our clients are happy and making sure that you know customers are getting what they need from our revenue cycle. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yes, thank you. And our next interview was with Kristen Brahman and Trudy Murray, and they were both with Value Health, and they had uh, just finished a presentation, Sue, on where we are with recruitment and retention and where we want to be. And it was a great uh, mm-hmm. conversation. We had a lot of fun talking about it. Uh, so let's listen to that interview. This is John Gailey. I'm here at the New York State Association meeting in 
uh, Saratoga Springs. Uh, this is our spring conference. And I'm sitting here with Trudy Murray and Kristen Brahman from Value Health. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your job. So I'll start with you, Kristen. Tell us a little bit about your job over at Value Health. So I've been with Value Health for about 10 years, 10 and a half years, uh, with the Human Resources Department, primarily with the talent team. So mm-hmm. working on bringing in talent, attracting talent, and then um, my focus kind of shifted more into our systems, so our okay. talent system. So I manage our performance systems, recruiting systems, onboarding systems, and learning management systems. Got it. So I do a lot of reporting and um, analyzing some of our data, talent data. Right, right. And Trudy? Yes. So I have been with Value Health for 11 years now. I've been in HR for over 17 years, and I have significant experience in employee relations, training and development, uh, recruiting, and performance management. And currently, I'm an HR business partner for uh, several of our ASCs at Value Health that we manage, and I am their go-to for all things HR. So it goes without saying right now, we are in a very difficult situation with recruitment, retention. I mean, I would imagine, was it standing room only in your session? <laughs> it was close. It was it close, was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't imagine it not being. As a matter of fact, it probably should have been a main stage discussion, uh, given how popular it is. And, and of course, at the podcast, we have been, uh, it seems like almost every episode we're dealing with recruitment issues or um, you know training issues. How do you get the people up to speed on on what their jobs are going to be our our whole boot camp you know system that we started two years ago was the most popular in the industry so you know definitely we've recognized the need in the industry to do this so i'm going to start with you trudy what do you think surgery centers need to do in order to ramp up their ability to recruit people when the competition out there is so fierce uh that's a good question and um Actually, in the presentation today that me and Kristen co-partnered on, the piece that I spoke to um, that's close to my heart is employee engagement and culture. Mm-hmm. So I talked about employee engagement and culture. What is it? Why does it matter? Mm-hmm. Um, so even if we know that it's a highly competitive market right now in healthcare and uh, healthcare workers are being recruited away from mm-hmm. facilities uh, left and right. And the one thing that I tried to educate and provide a takeaway to my audience on was you have to create the culture that keep people there and retain mm-hmm. them. That doesn't cost anything. Um, you have to maintain a high level of engagement uh, with your uh, staff and and that is talking to them, listening to them, involving mm-hmm. them, um, having a company culture that you're proud of. So my whole presentation was truly just around tactics and things that you can do to keep a highly engaged uh, workforce and, and retain them. And that was the whole premise of my presentation was that. So we talked about a lot of, lot of, um, tactics to do that that again did not cost anything and i'll let Kristen talk about uh her portion of it um that deals with recruiting so to take take away right from one of trudy's slides she said your culture can be your best recruiter Mm -hmm. so i primarily currently am in data right i pull Mm -hmm. a lot of reporting so across our 30 ascs that are across the nation over the last five years consistently where we find people where people find us is word of mouth Mm -hmm. it's employee referrals right And Indeed is up there as well as another great source. Um, But again, how do you attract, you know, attracting that talent with your current staff? Right. Have them bring in their friends, people who are in the industry as well. They can be your best recruiters, right? Mm -hmm. 
So making sure that that culture fosters that, making sure that internally everyone's happy and engaged. So once you get them on board, okay, so your value health, you're not a small company, right? I mean, and you look around your audience today, and I'm sure the most of the people, if not all the people in that room were saying, oh, what can they teach me about managing my small operation? So what's your response to that? I actually, it was fascinating because you started out by saying it doesn't cost anything to develop that culture. Yeah. And um, employer relations like is uh, close to, again, close to my heart. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that I talk to my leaders about are just simple things about how to, how to treat people, how mm-hmm. you treat one another. So even if you have nurses that are being recruited or attempted to be recruited away from you, you know, maybe they do go away. But a lot of the advice that I like to give my hiring managers when they're recruiting and they're dealing with these retention issues is, uh, to be quite honest, some of the nurses that they recruit away, if they were able to recruit them away for that one-time sign-on bonus that they yeah. get after three months, then I don't know if that was really the best fit for you anyway. Right. And then the other thing um, that my facilities have done that I support is um, they do take care of their employees. And what I mean by that is um, I have a facility that everybody received a retention bonus for each year of service that they were there. Uh, they do have um, just a lot of programs and things that they do just to keep their their employees engaged. And then the other one thing that one of my leaders told me was, Trudy, we just, pe-. I was like, how do you do it? How do you retain your employees? He said, we just treat them right. We take care of, we, our physicians take care of our, our employees and they put, they put our employees first. Right. And so we want them to have fair, competitive benefits. We want them to have competitive pay and we treat them right. That, yeah. That's basically it. Well, and you want to develop a culture like our company. We're very proud. We're a family-owned company. But that doesn't mean, I mean, we ran out of family members a while ago, so we have to recruit people from outside. But as far as I'm concerned, sometimes I have to really work hard to figure out who is in my family and who's not. That's how we've developed that culture. And that so that puts you in a position where to quit means leaving the family. Yes. Um, and that's the culture that you're talking about. And you and your point being is if we can do it in a big company like ours, obviously you can do it in a small company. Yeah, it's a it's an emotional attachment. Employee engagement is an it's an emotional attachment that employees have and how they feel about the company, the mission, the values, mm-hmm. um, and how they're treated. So again, it is like family and some of those employees that have left out of the AF- ASCs that I management, some of them have been knocking on the door to come back because the grass wasn't greener on the other side they found out so yeah so Kristen a big part of this is uh, social media you know the data that you have to collect I I will admit you know I am a neophyte when it comes to this and uh, and yet you know as a neophyte I've still been able to grow this podcast pretty well so if I've been able to do this certainly everybody else out there but you obviously manage a large platform. What advice would you give to these surgery centers as they try to figure out how to leverage those platforms? Yeah, sure. You know, and you have to think too about the next generation coming through. Mm-hmm. They're more likely and more apt to be on their social media and find opportunities that way. So being able to leverage them within your recruitment strategies to find and attract talent is yeah. going to be huge, right? And because that's at no cost to you. Right. Most of all of your current employees have social media accounts. Mm-hmm. Now you got to be careful how you utilize that and how you push for them to utilize that. You want to make sure you have a policy around social media and that they're following those guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely want to protect yourself from that aspect. But 
Um, having them post that you're hiring and engage their circle of friends, right? I talked about utilizing data mm-hmm. and saying that we find most of our talent and attract our people through employee referrals, right? Mm-hmm. So utilize them, utilize that social media to, to get to your reach, right? Mm-hmm. Have your mom share it with her reach right, of friends, right, right. right? Have your friends share it, coworkers share it, like and share. And the more, the bigger net you can cast, the more likely you are to be able to pull in like, like-minded others, right? right? People in your current social circle. I, and you make a very good point, too. I mean, just from our standpoint, we don't spend a lot of time on the podcast or a lot of money on the podcast advertising outside of the social media circles. And we don't pay any of those exorbitant prices that yeah. some people pay for for that type of, uh, of reach. So it's very – but you do need to get people that know what they're doing on this. Sure. And then, uh, you know, have a, a training program for that and make sure that everybody is engaged in it. Sure. I mean, you've already you've already got the millennial generation who are great on social media. They're great right. with technology. They're already in your workforce, Right. They're in their 30s, maybe approaching their 40s, too. So, you know, leverage them, too. I think what you're saying is I have to hire uh, Sue's six-year-old to take manage our our, our uh, social media presence. Yeah, that's great that advice. Probably yeah. <laughs> She'd probably do a really great job. <laughs> so we recruited somebody. We mm-hmm. brought them on board. First day that they're there, the doctor says, I need this person in my room right now. What's your response? Not going to happen, by the way. But but how do you how do you deal with the the need for these people to come on board with the absolute need for them to be properly trained and onboarded so that you don't lose them so quickly? Yeah, I would say you know we want to set them up for success. Yeah. So in terms of to piggyback of what Kristen talked about, okay, now we've recruited them and we've leveraged social media to do so. So we have to onboard them in the proper way. Mm-hmm. We have yeah. to orient them. So that would not be a good move um, for us to just throw that employee out the first day when they haven't been trained the way that we do mm-hmm. things here. And um, there's competencies that we need to make sure that they right. have um, their skilled in. So it would just be a message to a physician that, hey, physician, this is great. I know you're eager to get employee out there and help and we want them too, but we're, we're, we are still onboarding and orienting them yeah. and we want them to be successful and we want you know them to be of value to you as well and so yeah we'll we have someone else that we can put in that slot but right now we need to onboard and and set this employee up for success before we release them and how important is finding the right mentor for those individuals in the beginning and setting them up to uh, you know to, to shadow somebody else in the beginning and who should that be what type of personality you're looking for there um that personality and that's great that you say that because we have an ambassador program mm-hmm. and I'm actually part of the ambassador program so when we have new hires I've been assigned a payroll person to be their ambassador for and my role is just a Tell them things that they don't know to ask, yeah, um, that yeah. maybe their leader hasn't brought up or any coworkers have brought up or anything that they just like. I would rather ask my ambassador versus asking my yeah. leader for various reasons. Um, and that person's role is just to get that person, the ambassador, mm-hmm. um, acclimates that new employee and just kind of guides their hand and builds a relationship with them, takes them to lunch, listens mm-hmm. to them, answers any questions they have without any judgment, totally yeah. judgment-free zone, and just make them feel comfortable. And it's like, hey, I'm your buddy. While you're here, whatever you need, however I can help you, whatever questions you have, don't hesitate to reach out to me. And check in on them. What I've seen recently, and unfortunately, is a little bit of a trend toward, okay, your recruitment involves determining whether you have a heartbeat and whether you're still breathing. And of course, and you guys are laughing. I mean, but you know what I mean is that, I mean, sometimes 
just having a warm body there or semi-warm body um, is is just the, the the main thing those doctors want. And yet you're you said it earlier, you're setting them up for failure. How do you deal with that? You know that constant stress of trying to find the right person against the need to get somebody in the seat there. I, I mean, I think my argument is always it's it, you're 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 going to hurt the patients, you're going to hurt the other staff members, and you might end up losing a, a good staff member. By keeping that person on board, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's easy to fall into that trap. Our hiring managers that I work with, I have to advise all the time. I understand you need help. Mm-hmm. I get that. I understand you're short staff. I get it. But you have to have a competent person. You want to have someone that is going to be a good fit um, and be successful, which makes the organization successful. So. Unfortunately, um, there's no easy answer to that other than you have to put a Band-Aid on what you already have going on yeah. and work with your current staffing plan until you can get a competent bodied person in the yeah. seat. So never would I advise any leader to just get a warm body yeah. with a heartbeat because that that's you're, you're setting up everybody else for a uh, failure. And that would not be a uh, that would be a lose lose for everybody. Yeah. And then just lastly, what do you think our future is? I mean, is it bright right now? You know, I mean, we're, as we try to recruit, are there is there a lot of good talent out there that we just have to find and bring in? I'll start with you. Sure. Kristen. So, I mean, sure, there's got to be talent out there, great talent probably that's currently looking for jobs that's in need. But you also, I think it kind of goes back to keeping your current culture and keeping mm-hmm. your current employees engaged, Right. The nature with the, all this, the COVID-19 and what that's the impact that's had on the industry with people just wanting to retire early, leave the industry or yeah. leave the workforce altogether. It's hurting us and everyone's right. feeling it. Right. So we're feeling it in our pockets, especially having to pay more mm-hmm. or having a hard time competing with larger organizations. Some of those hospitals that can mm-hmm. can have the money can afford to pay more as where our smaller ASCs cannot. I hope and I feel like we'll get over that hump. It may take a little while longer. It may not be happening just yet, but I feel like we'll get over that hump. And then if you've spent your efforts and your energy on your culture and building up your current employees and making a, a, a you know, having engaged employees that are connected to your mission, vision, and values, you have a good, strong culture, that's going to bring those people back, mm-hmm. right? They may be enticed by that COVID sign-on bonus or that differential pay that they're going to get, you know, temporarily while we're in the midst of all this. But I think once that turns around and those finances aren't flowing freely from these larger systems, I think if we can maintain a great, strong culture, people are going to start coming back. I agree. I totally agree. I agree 110%. I think it's going to take some time Mm -hmm. and some more time and some time. But eventually, I think um, things are going to turn around in a, in a positive um, eventually with healthcare, and, and and already we're seeing some signs of people that left because they thought the grass yeah. was green on the other side for that big sign-on bonus and now have come back knocking on the door yeah. to get back into their home. The family. Yeah. Yeah. The, the family. family. Yeah. The family again. yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'm offbeat already just spending this time with you. Thank you so much for joining on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And next, I interviewed uh, Barb Terrell, and she was with Value Health, and she did a, a great presentation on patient satisfaction and experience. 
So this is John Gailey. I'm here at the New York State Association meeting in Saratoga Springs, and I'm here with uh, Barb Terrell with Value Health. And uh, Barb, you just finished a wonderful session on patient engagement and patient satisfaction um, and got a lot of good feedback on it already. And uh, um, I just thought you we would uh, kind of have a conversation about uh, what you talked about during your uh, your session and, and where you see this is going in the industry. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, John. I'm very passionate about patient experience, so I appreciate the opportunity to be able to highlight it to people all the time. Yes. I could talk about it forever. And I, I agree. I think we did have a good session. We had a lot of participation, which is always really mm-hmm. nice. The focus of my patient experience um, topic really is primarily to build a culture that mm-hmm. focuses on the patient and to be able to individualize the care that we deliver to meet the needs of the patient um, so that their experience is something they're willing to talk about in the community mm-hmm. positively, and it helps us build loyalty for the care that we deliver. Right. So what were some of the major topics that you covered? You know, What are some of the best advice that you can give to surgery centers on uh, engaging your patients better? I'm I'm not positive about advice, but some of the tactics that we've used that have actually helped to drive our patient experience scores relatively high is to build a culture that reinforces doing the right thing well Mm -hmm. as the default. So it begins with orientation, and you have to set the expectations with your staff about using tactics that help improve patient experience. And then I delivered a few of the tactics that we cover in orientation, and solidified them with some videos off of Mm -hmm. YouTube to help people know and understand what the words mean. So as an example, there is a fairly famous uh, YouTube video with a blind man sitting in, I think it's St. Mark's Square, but if not, it's something comparable. And someone comes up and takes his sign and rewrites the words on his sign. And as a result of new words being used, the donations to the blind person increase drastically. And that's um, the video that I use to reinforce the tactic keywords mm-hmm. at key times, because there are some things that we say to patients that are not scripted, but actually use keywords. I'm closing the curtain for your privacy. Mm-hmm. I'm repositioning you for your comfort. Mm-hmm. I'm applying ice to your knee to help alleviate your pain. I can say that any way I want, but there are a couple of key words that link what I did with why I did it Mm -hmm. that become important in the patient knowing and understanding that they're being cared for. Mm -hmm. So what what happens in that video? Oh, so the the original sign, I think, says, I'm blind. Mm -hmm. And the words that the individual changed it to is, it's a beautiful day and I can't see it. So it allowed people to have some empathy for the individual and be more generous with the individual. So what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that ASCs have in, I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, COVID has changed an awful lot. We all know that. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, our staffing levels are, you know, low, you know, because we're having a hard time finding people. And then the people we find sometimes are less experienced than others. So uh, you talked about how in orientation you have these discussions. I assume you also mean like there's ongoing mentoring and other things like that. So what do you suggest to the overstressed nurse who is just trying to get the paperwork filled out to, uh, to make sure that patient is engaged and happy? 
So, so the very first slide that I had reinforced um, how you build a culture that emphasizes patient experience. And to me, that follows the quadruple aim that mm -hmm. includes um, building an environment where our partners, which include our physicians, our staff, our volunteers, our vendors, mm -hmm. everyone, in the experience that they have during their time at our center. So um, we start orientation with that, and I think it helps staff feel valued as we do care about their experience day-to-day, -day, and they have some control over how they treat each other. And mm -hmm. so they help shape that culture that is either encouragement or discouragement, depending on some of the keywords they choose to use. So um, we interweave that in mm -hmm. all of our reinforcement. There's a lot of data out there that suggest that a well-oiled team is noticed by patients, mm -hmm. and they score your facility higher. Mm -hmm. So the communication between staff and between staff and physicians makes a difference mm -hmm. to the patients. And if it's smooth, easygoing, and more like camaraderie, you tend to have a better patient experience. Mm -hmm. They feel safer having their care delivered to them by a, a well-oiled team that communicates well with each right. other. Well, and how important I, we've been talking about that. I actually, you know, we, um, you know, my my company, our, our twenty employees. Of course, we're family owned, so it, it really helps with uh, with getting our, uh, our our. You know, we have to live together. So, uh -huh. um, but uh, when people encounter us, they see you know what camaraderie we have, and and that is really helping us when we go out to our centers and say, this is the type of environment that you should have here. This needs to be a family. You know, how do you foster that and, and working with them to foster it? Now, I didn't introduce you. I, I you know usually I ask what what your uh, role is. So you're with Value Health. Can you tell us what your role is in the organization a little bit about value health for our listeners so i'm um vice president of quality patient experience and performance improvement all things i'm passionate about mm -hmm. and able to help build an infrastructure within our organization so um value health is a management company that oversees ambulatory surgery centers as well as specialty hospitals throughout mm -hmm. the united states it's been a wonderful position for me to be able to use my skills and experience. So I have over 30 years experience in healthcare. And um, as a an individual within a family setting, I learn a lot from the individuals in my family about expectations for patient experience. So I tend to share some of those stories mm -hmm. with the um Information that I deliver in the in the settings where I do education. So Value Health is a very large organization. I mean, so many of our listeners here, and, and keep in mind, what is it? Fifty percent of the surgery centers in the country are two rooms or less. Um, obviously, they don't have anywhere near the resources that a big organization like Value Health has. Uh, and a lot of our listeners, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling right now, you know, to, to try to keep that staffing level. How can we translate what you do with that big organization to these smaller organizations without those resources? Well, John, I think every organization struggles with resources regardless of your size. Mm -hmm. So I would say all people currently working feel stretched mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. I think one of one of the key elements that has helped sustain me uh, goes back 
to the original comment about building a culture mm-hmm. where staff feel valued. And part of that is being able to reinforce their ability to do a good job and having them know and understand what that looks like so that they know on a day-to-day basis whether they have been successful mm-hmm. in meeting the expectations. So a lot of particularly younger workers require continuous feedback. Mm -hmm. So encouragement, Mm -hmm. um, feedback, being able to recognize when they rise to the occasion. So if, if an occasional glitch comes up in an ASC, recognizing that and thanking them for stepping up to the plate, even, even at the, the level where I'm a bit removed from some of the centers, I know when um, challenges have presented themselves and I tend to want to touch base. How are you doing? Is there anything I can do to help? Um, and doing that with coworkers helps build an environment where they're less likely to be encouraged to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's like this, leaving your family. <laughs> in this day and age, um, yeah. you know, we're all receiving uh, calls about opportunities elsewhere. And so you have to actually stop and think about what keeps me where I am is the people I work with, mm-hmm. how they treat me and how I'm able to do my job. So you have, you have to be able to facilitate an environment where people actually reflect on, you know, how well do they have it in their mm-hmm. current organization. And if they need to be part of the solution, how can they become part of that solution mm-hmm. and drive a more positive environment? What do you think of the value of mentoring and getting identifying good mentors early and then getting them engaged with people very early in that experience? So I, I love mentoring and I love mentors. And I'll, I'll give you my own personal example. Um, I have been in healthcare for a really long time. And if anything ever happens to your heart, I can troubleshoot an intraortic balloon pump way better than the next person. But if you want me to upload or download or whatever the word is, a new program onto my computer, (laughs) I have to phone a friend. (laughs) So, So I have embraced some of the newer individuals in our organization to supplement my weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And admittedly, one of my weaknesses is computer technology. I do oversee quality outcomes and am a proponent of obtaining electronic data once and using that as the source of truth, which has been difficult to accomplish throughout our ASCs, since mm-hmm. many of the ASCs do not have a clinical electronic health record. Right. I know the concepts, but the words that I use do not resonate mm-hmm. with the IT people who perform the work. Yeah. And so I've learned to embrace an intermediary that I'm mentoring him on clinical experience, mm-hmm. and he's mentoring me on appropriate verbiage to use with electronic technology. And it's working really well. That is a great idea, two-way mentoring. I, I love it. Uh, you're right. I mean, if you think about it, we, we do a lot of mentoring, of course, in our, in our company with people. But And I don't, I mean, it's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're mentoring me, but I don't think of it that way as a two-way street. I love that. That's yeah, yeah. Great. We have to learn from the new people. Yeah. They have great ideas, too. But, right. Um, Especially communication. They communications. also want to communicate yeah, and, that yeah. they're valued. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's really helpful. But I, uh, I gave an example in the patient experience talk. I was reciting a text that my sister-in-law sent me about how frustrated 
frustrated she was with the discharge instructions because mm-hmm. the words did not have meaning enough to her to be able to reshape the durable medical equipment that was given to my brother. And my little six-year-old grandson, after I read the text out loud to my husband, just piped up, well, she needs a YouTube video. (laughs) So you can even learn from children who are listening to the conversation because they have different solutions than those of us in the business might not think of. Right. I think it's also important. I remember before I opened my second surgery center, I had an auto accident just before the event, and I was in the emergency room. I was, I was not seriously injured. Actually, that was the interesting part about it. I was not seriously injured, but I have asthma. Uh, and, you know, I had an asthma attack while I was there because I was more nervous about what I didn't know what was going on. But we talked about that for a while because I always talk about myself anyway. But, no, we talked, uh, you know, to the staff, and I said, this is, that's what you, you have to build an experience for those people that they're never going to feel like they're left alone like I did and uh, and that's you know we developed a culture much like you've been describing right from the very beginning of you know patient-centered care where we you know everybody doesn't matter what their background was whether they are young or old we want everybody to feel the same way and, and safe and protected in there and it's those personal experiences that you need to take into the environment in which we all work so one of the stories that I stole was from the CEO of Advent Health and his wife had a serious accident and was taken to his facility. So he kind of knew his way around mm-hmm. and it was difficult for him. He wasn't at work, I guess, at the time. And his, his explanation is it changed the way they onboard staff. And yeah. one of the very first things that happened was as he entered the emergency room, he was all flustered and in a hurry and a little bit annoyed. Mm-hmm. And one of the staff pulled him aside and mm-hmm. said, you need to pull yourself together. Your wife needs you. You need you need to move into supportive role. Right. And how he has translated that into his culture of patient experience is the very first thing that you need to recognize is keep me safe. Yeah. And um, he was able to take a couple minutes, pull himself together, and then when he walked in the room, he could be reassuring yeah. to his wife. And she felt safe. Right. And I think that's so important, kind of like you said, not being left alone. And mm-hmm. then articulating that you've come to the right place. Yeah. We have the care that you need, mm-hmm. and we will provide it to you. Somehow portraying that automatically makes people much more comfortable that they're going to be cared for. And that sounds like a good way to end. (laughs) Barb, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Have a good day. Thanks. And for the last interview, John spoke with John Van Valkenburg and Jeffrey Flynn, who are the president and the vice president of the New York State Association. Um, They talked about the association and the conference. So I'm here at the New York State Association meeting in uh, Saratoga Springs. It's our uh, spring meeting, and I'm here with John Van Volkenberg, who's the president of the New York State Association. Welcome, John. Thank you, John. Th- thanks for having me, and, and thanks for, uh, again, doing the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you, you also have another job. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so um, the job that I get paid for is, uh, is actually uh, as, as the executive director uh, of Upstate Orthopedics Ambulatory Surgery Center in East Syracuse, New York. And uh, we are a uh, single specialty orthopedics ambulatory surgery center, four operating rooms, um, really busy place, fully physician owned, and mm-hmm. uh, that keeps me 
I'm really busy, and uh, then I still got to find time to, to obviously uh, run a state association, <laughs> lead this organization. But I, I, I do really enjoy it. Yeah, so no, you've done a great job over the last couple of years, and you know, uh, shepherding us through a very difficult time. And now it's great. Now this is our second time back live since the uh, pandemic. And uh, talk a little bit about the challenges that we've had and the things that you deal with on a daily basis now at the state level. Yeah, I mean, really, obviously COVID, you yeah. know, and, and I don't want to talk too much about that because everybody's sick about Tired talking about COVID. But obviously during that period, it was uh, it was every day. I know when we when we discussed this at our fall meeting, which was our first one back, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we talked about everything the state association did to support uh, ASCs in New York State throughout the pandemic. So um, so obviously, there, but since then, you know, really now that we've been able to move on a little bit, hopefully from the pandemic, we've really started... Uh, to focus our efforts uh, on other things. We reactivated, I guess you could say, our political action committee, mm-hmm. um, which hasn't been established quite yet, but will be um, very soon mm-hmm. um, in the next couple of weeks. So we're really excited about that and also uh, getting more involved on uh, working on our legislative priorities and working on getting the getting the association uh, more prevalent and uh, and just continue to, to grow the association is really where our focus has shifted now that again COVID is hopefully in the rearview mirror a little bit. So uh, Jeffrey Flynn just joined us. He's the program chair for the New York State Association. Thank you, Jeffrey, for uh, popping in. So we're we're talking about what's going on with the New York State Association, what the challenges have been during this time. John was just talking about some of the things that he's been working on, you know, at the state level and what we had to deal with during the, the thing. Let's talk about the conference for yes. a minute because, you know, it, John, you were saying something during the board meeting, which is so true, is that the focus of our organization over the last well, one could argue uh, 31 years yeah. has been doing these conferences. And yet there's so many other things that we need to get done right now. But just getting people back together so that we can even start that conversation mm-hmm. is important. So why don't you, two of you, uh, start with you, John. You know, how important is it to get this, you know, get our membership up, get people really much more engaged uh, at a state level? I mean, it's it's extremely important. Um, we, I mean, that that's really what makes us, um, you know, an organization uh, of, of the type that we are. I mean, we need, you know, there's strength in numbers, you know, for us to advocate for ambulatory surgery centers, we have to have ambulatory surgery centers involved. Right, right. Um, we need to know, you know, what what matters to them. We need to know, you know, what, what their needs are. I mean, I know what mine are as being an administrator myself, mm-hmm. but, you know, I, I, we, we have to hear from everybody. And, and also, really, again, most ambulatory surgery centers are especially around here are, um, you know, they're freestanding. I mean, they're mm-hmm. kind of on their own. So, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity to be able to compare notes mm-hmm. and, um, and, and really develop good relationships with your colleagues. And, and this, this event is, is the perfect way to do that. So, Jeffrey, a big part of doing that, of course, is putting together a good program, bringing together vendors that can uh, that, that support the industry and have uh, products and services as well as solutions for organizations. Talk a little bit about how the work that you and the program committee <coughs> have uh, gone through in order to get this to uh, to where we are today. Yeah, kind of um, jumping on what John has said to get us out of our silos and talk about number of things that we need to do as an organization together. Our vendors are very important to us, not only supporting the conference, but they're the ones who educate us. Mm-hmm. We don't have committees back in our centers that can go out and research things. It's it's the vendors who educate us mm-hmm. on what's new in the and what different types of things we can put in for new technology, new equipment, better do better resources for us to have. Um, the program itself, putting together programs in different tracks, 
with different speakers coming in and kind of educating them about different things. One of the big things is I always push is value-based care. Yeah. That's coming down the pike. We all know it is, but I don't think enough of us know about it. Another issue in technology, again, of pushing yeah. forward with it. You know, so many of our centers are still on paper and, mm -hmm. you know, eventually that's going to hurt them in reimbursement. And we right. need to encourage, assist and help them to make that transition. And understand the importance of doing that and what the benefits are going to be for them to do that. Very much so. Right. Mm -hmm. Against the price. Um, what do you think has been some of the strengths, Jeffrey, of this conference uh, compared to where we've been before? I think one of the comments that, that I've heard is like, you know, we've kind of lowered the bar so much. Just getting together in a way means that no matter what, we, the minute we got here, we were successful anyway. But it really has been much more than that, I think. And uh, you know, oh, very much so. Um, yeah. Having our keynote speaker, Scott Becker, speak, mm -hmm. that was a very big, huge draw coming into it. Right. And also that he's recognized how the association has grown through the years and how many members we have now, that he was interested in coming into New right. York and, and discussing with it. The different um, programs that we've actually put together, I think um, I'm hearing nothing but good feedback that it this is – the best conference we've done so far mm -hmm. is what I'm hearing. It. I sent, the venue turned out to be wonderful. It was a great situation for us, but um, having getting the big time speaker was one big note right. to it. And also, I think the individual seminars everyone's getting a lot out of them. So the three of us were together for a panel discussion um, a couple hours ago. We were talking about <clears throat> New York State reporting. And it was an interesting uh, conversation. Well, first of all, we were kind of surprised when we, we thought we were going to be talking to an audience of people that don't know an awful lot about state reporting. And it turns out that almost everybody that was in there are experts at it. They were uh, they were there for, well, be, well, because obviously they all want to listen to us speak. Um, but <laughs> I think, you know, part of it is that they knew that our, our panel discussions tend to be op open questions. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions you as the moderator asked, Jeffrey, was, you know, what are the, the biggest questions that you have? What are the, the challenges that you have on a daily basis? What are the phone calls are? So why don't you, John, explain some of the things that you, you're, the phone calls you're getting as the uh, state president. Yeah, I, I mean, as the state president, and, and again, back, you know, obviously for a long period of time, everything was, was COVID-related and then mm -hmm. vaccine-related. But really, you know, it's, it's moved on to legislation, you know, mm -hmm. to what what the state wants to prioritize. I think our members are getting, you know, more proact more proactive. You know, I think part of that is because of, you know, how we've been able to educate them and how, you know, as we've grown as an association, you know, we have more resources to be able to, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to do things like this event, but also, you know, our biweekly calls, mm -hmm. um, again, getting the pack, the pack started. So mm -hmm. that's been, you know, that's kind of been a big priority lately. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as in individual surgery, now it's, it's become more, uh, when before everything was just COVID related, now the the questions are much more diverse. Um, you know, I, a lot of things about CONs. Right. You know, people that are they're waiting. You know, they want to hear. They say, "Are other surgery centers?" Actually, that's my most common theme of a question: is mm -hmm. are are you hearing this from anybody? Else? I'm having this problem. Are you hearing this from yeah, anybody yeah. else? Especially things like Sparks reporting, Correct. cost reporting, yes. um, HICRA, all I mean, those reporting requirements. That's what it always is, and, and yeah. then it's helpful because sometimes I do. And a lot of times, uh, you know, I'm actually able to, you know, I'm not in a position to help everybody, obviously. Right. Um, I don't have the time, nor do I have the knowledge, the expertise when it comes yeah. to ev solving everybody's questions. Uh, but one thing that I am able to do is I'm able to put people together. I say, mm -hmm. well, actually... Somebody is. Somebody asked me, and they're having a very similar problem. And you yeah. know what? I think they figured it out. Right. So you know, and I put the, those two members, those two facilities, in contact with each other. And you know, I mean, that's that's the great thing about the organization is, you know, everybody. It's it's almost we're all 
different companies, but uh, you know we're like on on the same team, really. I mean, it's it's kind of like one mission, you know. Even right. though, you know, they're they're it's this organization that organization that binds us. Well, and, and let's uh, let's talk about that for a second. Membership, the importance of membership, what you get with membership, uh, and how how do you become a member? Uh, absolutely, I mean, me- membership again. It, it's more important now than ever. Um, you know, in in your state association, I, I think um, most things that affect us happen at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, so while obviously, you know, there's 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 federal regulations and certainly CMS things that that affect us, really. The, the biggest things are at the state level, and that's where there's less resources, um, mm-hmm. you know, for individual facilities and, right. and, and less influence at the state level. But that's where you know an organization like this is so important. And you know, it's not just the modest dues, and our dues are very modest. It's seven hundred fifty dollars mm-hmm. for a facility member um, that helps support the organization and, and advocate um, and support surgery centers. It's it's. The, the number and it's interesting when we talk to the department of health you know capital health consulting has been been able to get us you know we've had meetings and conference right. calls with you know deputy commissioner various people and levels of leadership at the department of health which is great because yeah. we didn't always have that in the past so now we we have their ear a little bit and um but what one of the things they always want to know is how many surgery centers yeah. how many surgery centers are in your organization because if i was telling them well there's 30 they would say well there's 160 yeah, in the state they, the rest of them. you know but that's why it's important when we can say we have 100 facility members yeah you know then i mean that means something right now right. we are representing truly representing the group and, and and it's a representative group you know and that's why you know i i would love to have every single one in the state we want to continue growing and uh, and hopefully we'll we'll continue to do that and it's really trying to reach out to a lot of times the smaller um, mm-hmm. surgery centers that are less connected and less tuned in. And in a lot of cases, they're the ones that probably need the organization. They don't even know they That's do. That's right. That's right. Um, but th- those are the people we're trying to reach out to. And, and again, um, with regards to how do you join, um, you can just, if, if you're a facility, Article 28, Ambulatory Surgery Center in New York State, uh, just reach out to us. You can go to our website, nysaasc.org. You can actually join right from the website. Uh, You register for a username and password, and you can join and pay your dues right online. Or, you know, you could just shoot us an email, uh, our phone number, which I don't have in front of me, but that's on the website. Or shoot us an email, which is info at nysaasc.org. And if you send an email to that, that comes right to us. If you got questions about joining um, that's the best way to do it, and we can point you in the right direction. And we'll put a link on the uh, the show notes for that, too. Just as well. Just as important as the members are, are our vendors, um, and uh, you know we have a very large number of organizations that support us. Uh, uh, by uh, as an auxiliary member, for example, or as a, as a vendor, can you talk a little bit about uh, what we're looking for, what we have right now in vendors, and what the benefits are? Yeah, the benefits to the vendors is coming to this conference, and many say this coming over and over again, is that they actually really do get new business out of it. They get traditional and regain with their current customers and a chance to support them in that situation. But they also feel that they actually, this conference gives us the interaction with the vendors itself. We set it up that there is a lot of vendor interaction. Mm -hmm. That's crucial because that keeps them coming back and Mm -hmm. it keeps a lot more vendors coming each year. 
And quite frankly, you know, this year's um, conference, the vendors were able to cover the entire conference cost. And that's huge because we're looking at different things we have to do as initiatives in the organization that if we're going to grab from the dues or anything else, that's going to limit what we can do. So we're getting that each conference tends to be net positive now, Mm -hmm. but now we're able to go and do other things. So that's the real importance of being a vendor because of the interaction you get. The other aspect is our associate members jumping in is mm-hmm. is a crucial part too. A number of management organizations are able to be part of the center, are able to be part of the um, organization. And we're going to encourage that as we go forward and look at some of the other societies coming into us too, right. just to further help with different groups that we're aligned with. Well, thank you both so much. This has been a great conference. Thanks for inviting the podcast back here. It's our, what is it? Like, well, it's fifth year, I believe. We've been here for quite a while, and uh, this is always a very popular podcast because of the New York State uh, support. So thank you for uh, so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, John. Uh, thank you for having us on the podcast. Thank you for doing the podcast. Thank you for helping us plan the event and uh, and bringing your team here, and really for all your support of ASC's New York State and of the, the New York State Association. And if I can just add on, John, congratulations on on your lifetime award for the <laughs> New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery oh. Center, which is oh, completely well deserved. It was uh, the uh, somehow they actually surprised me. It's uh, it's hard <laughs> to do that sort of thing, but uh, thank you very much. It's always been a pleasure. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting edge information solutions for surgery providers, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.